early on in uh, their relationship at a hospital together. Uh, my dad was in the Navy, and uh, they experienced that together in Pensacola. Then they went to serve at, in Key West. Uh, my uh, mom in Key West uh, saved my dad's life. He was stung by a, a Portuguese man of war, and uh, uh, she dragged him off the beach while she was pregnant, into the car, and off to the hospital. Uh, they experienced a dozen moves together, three kids, 17 grandchildren, and 18,000 nights together. 18,000. That's just crazy, the context of 50 years of marriage. So family was there yesterday, friends. We all gathered. It was lots of people. We had food. We had games. We had skits. We had songs. We celebrated together the beauty that is marriage. Now this is really what this book is, the Song of Songs. It's a celebration, a celebration of beauty, the beauty of marriage. And it really kind of talks about how do we cultivate the beauty of marriage. And at the same time as we celebrated yesterday with my parents, you know, behind the curtain, my brother David and my sister Allison and myself, we didn't just see always what was beautiful. We saw sicknesses. We saw surgeries. I had to go through seven surgeries as a young kid. We saw arguments, struggles between my parents. We saw losing loved ones. We've seen the ups and downs. Some of you when you hear 50 years of marriage, you say, wow, that's awesome. And some of us say, Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> this thing can be tough, marriage. You might have struggled in your own marriage. You were 50 years, whoa. Maybe you've seen struggles in your own parents' marriages. We can ask the other question where is beauty in marriage? Where is there beauty in this thing that is fallen, broken? Can we find beauty in what God has created and made? Let's find it out together, shall we? The Song of Songs, chapter 7, verses 10 through 8, 4. It's printed in your worship guide, or you can find it on page 564 of the Black, Black Pew Bibles. Please follow along as I read God's word. I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded, whether the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I will give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old, which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. Oh, that you were like a brother to me, who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. Would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. 
I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Herein is wisdom. Well, we're just joining us. Uh, welcome to uh, the Song of Songs, uh, a hot book uh, that we're going through this summer. Uh, and one thing we've realized that it's just more than a kissing book. It's more than just the passion you might see in this section right here. It's a picture of the beauty of God's design for marriage. You see, we see that in the pleasure and intimacy that is described in this, we see that it points to the creator of all things, more talked about in the children's sermon, that even sex points to the glory of God, that he gives us such wonderful pleasures. Beauty is mentioned quite a bit in this book, 16 times to be exact. In the section just before I read, it's mentioned four times the most in a really pericope in a small section together. And what's mentioned in this beauty here is the lover, the bridegroom, sees the beauty of his bride. And he sees God's beautiful creation that he has made in her. It might be odd for some of us. To see that beauty is described in the Bible through such a physical thing like sex. You see, again, the bridegroom is looking at his bride, looking at her, his, her physicality, looking at her beauty. And he's rejoicing in the beauty that she is. You know, we have to remember there is something unique about the creation, especially the creation of humanity. In Genesis, God gives certain labels to man and woman that he gives that's different than everything else in creation. He says, I made man and woman in my image. That's something unique. And as crude as we might see our own physical bodies, or flawed as we see our bodies, or as Martin Luther said, brother ass is what I define my, my body as. This thing I just want to get rid of. The truth is, we are made in his image. Not just spiritual and soul, but body. That body that physicality, the pleasure we see in marriage, that points to the beauty of God and His image. I love Evelyn Whitehead. She says, The gifts of a loving Creator, our bodies, are not barriers to grace. If we could truly accept this, then we would know God even in the ambiguous delights of our sexuality. We would even know God in the ambiguous delights of our sexuality. You see, the lover, the bride, 
groom has been talking about the beauty of his bride. And then it culminates in verse 10, which we read. It says, I am my beloved's. Sorry, she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. After he has laid out the beauty that he's given to her. You see, here they are talking about an intimacy. An intimacy that comes through a union. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. They identify themselves as one. Two becoming one. Not just in physicality, but emotionally and spiritually. It's not just the Song of Songs that makes that point. Jesus makes the same point, does he not? The Pharisees go up to him and they kind of give him this list of things. Oh, can we be divorced? Moses talked about some exceptions and some rules about divorce. Um, what rules and exceptions do you give for divorce? And you see that Jesus doesn't respond with rules. Instead, he responds with this overarching truth. He says, the two shall become one flesh. No longer two, but one. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Not just physical union, that is a spiritual union that God has brought two together. So I want to kind of concentrate on that point, that there's physicality there, there's emotionality there, there's spirituality all put together. In marriage, that's what it is. The raw force of sexuality. And it's connected with emotional intimacy, companionship, family, responsibilities, permanency, commitment. This is my first point. Taking me a while to get to that, but here's the point. We can cultivate the beauty of marriage through a good combination of both commitment and intimacy. We can cultivate the beauty of marriage, whether it's in our own relationships or encouraging other people that are in marriage, through encouraging commitment and intimacy. There's something beautiful about that covenant promise of marriage. Two becoming one. Saying we are going to love each other unconditionally. And that's good to know, I think specifically for women in our culture, where body image is such an important thing. I know I've beaten this drum a lot of times, but I feel like we need to with what we see in our culture. It's good for women to know this, that your acceptance is not based on your appearance or performance but it's based on the unconditional love of Christ. And that is displayed in your marriage by your husband loving you, committing to you unconditionally, no matter what your body goes through in time. Age, having babies, surgeries, whatever it might be. And men, you know what Proverbs says? He says, May a man rejoice in the wife of your youth. doesn't mean just rejoice when you were young. You rejoice as you get older in the woman that you married in your youth. 
I love Gary Thomas. I think one of the best books on marriage is Sacred Marriage by Gary Thomas. I encourage anyone, you know, a lot of things that I say here, a lot of things that Bruce Marker says. uh, We talk about marriage a lot. Bruce and I, when we were at GA, just talking about the beauty of marriage and talking about the love of our wives. He literally went back to Gary Thomas. Sacred Marriage. I encourage you. It's really good. One thing he says in his book is this. He says, change is not the enemy of marriage, but really it's the purpose. You see, we in marriage change. We change, hopefully, for holiness sake. (laughs) Marriage is the laboratory where we are sanctified, seeing whether we truly can love when we were put with someone else. And it teaches us how to be self-sacrificial, how to be patient, how to be kind, how to be gentle, how to be those things. It's the laboratory of our sanctification is marriage. And how much more then is it in how we view our spouse in their physicality? That as we grow older with our spouse, we grow in our appreciation of their beauty. That it's all-encompassing the beauty that we see in them. Emotional, spiritual. And that as our spouse gets older, we see their bodies and say, it is beautiful. They are changing, and that is good in the sense that it's teaching me my true purpose to appreciate someone for how God has made them, and not just what I see in the world as outside beauty, but what God might put in my eyes to see as beautiful. See, commitment is what can help us lead us towards intimacy with our spouse and seeing them for the beauty that they are. Well, I think it goes both ways, too. Just don't harp on commitment, commitment, but actually intimacy can build commitment in your marriage. See, I'm really going to be talking more to guys here when I say this. I don't want to stereotype. Sometimes it can be the other way. But the desire for your spouse physically can teach us to show tenderness and empathy towards them. Okay? Uh, Ladies, sometimes your man might be doing really nice things for you. Oh, he's doing the dishes today. You know, he's saying nice things to me today. He's taking the kids out to the park. He just wants something, right? I know what he wants. Is that a bad thing? Is that a bad thing that his desire for you physically drives him to want to serve you? That's not a bad thing. That's how God created us. We are made in that marriage for that intimacy physically. And so that desire, either either a man for his wife or a wife for um, her husband, can drive them to that commitment, to those cores of wanting to love them and care for them and actually look past arguments so that you can be with each other physically. And truthfully, sometimes... I don't want to get crass, but after sex, you forget about the argument you just had the day before. It's just gone. And that can do that. 
Well, I want to give some, uh, some other points here, one more point on this. Is that I think that relationships, marriage, equals the playing field, I think, across humanity. I've seen people that have lived opulent lives, rich lives, people that have great jobs, great money, all those things. But still, their life does not feel complete because their marriage relationship is not doing well. And I've seen the opposite end. I've seen people that live in a double wide that are the happiest people and the most joyful people. Nothing wrong with living in a double wide because their marriage is amazing. Because they have joy with their spouse. See, I think God created us for relationships. And in relationships, we can experience joy in that commitment we've made towards each other and that pleasure and that intimacy. Now, as I say that, I want to give some encouragement here too. Singles, there is good news. Ultimate joy, ultimate satisfaction is not found in marriage relationships. It's found in a relationship with God. That's where it is ultimately found. That's not just an encouragement for singles. That's an encouragement for married people too. For divorced people. That, yes, marriage points to that we are made for relationships, but it also points to we are made for a greater relationship with God. You see, that unconditional love that we see in marriage, that commitment that we'll love each other no matter what, points to the greater unconditional love that the bridegroom, God, gives to us, the bride. I am my beloved's. And his desire is for me. Can we not say that about Christ's desire for us? That he loves us unconditionally. That is a greater relationship that even marriage has. That love from God the Father. So, one way to cultivate beauty in marriage is commitment and intimacy. A second way to cultivate beauty in marriage is making time for each other. Let's read together, shall we? I just harped in verse 10, and I'll go to verses 11 through 13. Come, my beloved, let us go out into the fields and lodge in the villages. Let us go out early to the vineyards and see whether the vines have budded. It's interesting, you remember early on, um, she was in the vineyards and that was a bad thing. She had to go work in the vineyards. Now she wants to go back to the vineyards with her lover. She's saying, listen, this is what love has done. It has restored what has been bad in the past. That I want to go back, back to the vineyard, back to this place. There's restoration with my, lo lo my lover. Where the grape blossoms have opened and the pomegranates are in bloom, there I'll give you my love. The mandrakes give forth fragrance, and beside our doors are all choice fruits, new as well as old which I have laid up for you, O oh, my beloved. Four points here. One, mandrakes were an aphrodisiac. Uh, you could read in Genesis about that. Um, and uh, so really, this is not a platonic getaway, okay? 
This is a getaway for pleasure. Also, this is springtime. And in springtime, there is a restoration. There is a refreshing. There are things coming back. The winter is over and now things are budding again. This going away with the lovers, they are restoring what they have. Also, it's natural. They're in nature. He's saying being together, getting away is a part of the natural order. And lastly, the new as well as old is which I have laid up for you. They're spicing things up. They are trying new things. It is the new and the old together in their getaway. Wednesday nights growing up was pizza night. And, I, you know, I got to experiment with every single pizza place in Madison growing up. You know, I, you know, from Uno's to Pizza Hut to Domino's to whatever new joint was open, Gumby's, whatever Madison joint remember back in the day. And I loved Wednesday nights. And not until I got older, I realized what was really happening on Wednesday nights was my parents left for a date night on Wednesday night. And I was either with my brother and sister, or I was home alone just having pizza and watching TV or whatever it might be. But my parents made the decision every Wednesday night, they're going to spend time together. One thing my parents would say to me often is the best way that we can love you, our kids, is that we love each other. Out of the love for each other, we can better love you. If you don't get away, if you don't cultivate that beauty in marriage, you can't do that. That's what it's talking about here. Lovers are getting away. They're, they're reconnecting with each other, remembering the spring of maybe their honeymoon. They're restoring what was maybe broken before and being together. We have a lot of young families here. And it's, it's hard to get away when you have young children. But you need to make the choice to do it. I'm going to speak, okay, I know first kids, what happens? I can't leave my baby. I'm sorry, I, can't, I can't leave my baby, no way. Yes, you can. Do it at least for your husband's sake. Leave your baby for 12 hours, 8 hours, 24 hours with someone, your mom or your dad or someone you trust. The best way you can love your kids is by loving each other. Take time for a date night. Call Aaron and I. We're not going to watch your kids, but we'll call someone else from church to watch your kids. <laughs> we know those single people. They'll do it. And we're serious. Uh, as a minister, We've been kicking around ideas about... This fall, having a once-a-month date night here at the church that you can drop your kids off, you can go on a date night. We need to make those decisions. The way that we can love the kids well here at Emmaus Road is we have healthy marriages. You know, there's something about the Song of Songs. Uh, the, the pendulum has swung in modern scholarship of the Song of Songs that it's 
It's about a man and a wife in the context of marriage. It's talking about sexual intimacy. And the pendulum has swung to that side. The truth is not until really the 20th century uh, did people really start to want to see it in that way. Maybe because sex was faux pas or Greek culture trying to revolt against it. But before it was really seen as kind of an allegory again between Christ the bridegroom, and us, the church. And I I do believe in modern scholarship that this is primarily talking about a husband and wife together. But I don't think we should lose track of the greater image it points towards that the reformers saw, that the early church saw. You know, it might be interesting to realize that the Puritans wrote almost the most, most amount of commentaries on the Song of Songs. It's a book that they loved, the Puritans. It's a book they loved because they saw their relationship with God as this lavish love that he would give them and bless them with. And the Puritans, I encourage you, I mean, John Gallagher has it, all these, I carry my Valley of Vision everywhere. The Valley of Vision is such a great little book of Puritan prayers. And one of the great ones in that, John, you might have read it, love, love for Christ is one of them. And the language that they speak to, to, like this writer gives to Jesus, is amazing. Should we not think of God's love for us in this way, that he loves us lavishly like this? That he says, and his desire is for me. This is what the Puritan says, If I love thee, my soul shall seek thee. Oh, how I need thee to abide in me, for I have not natural eyes to see thee. But I live by faith in one whose face to me is brighter than a thousand suns. The sun breaks out in glory when he shows himself as one who outshines all creation, makes men poor in spirit, and helps them to find their good in him. Grant that I may distrust myself to see my all in thee. You know, emphasize getting away with your lover, getting away with your spouse. Do you get away with the ultimate lover? Do you get away with Jesus and spend time with him and talk with him and say, Jesus, here I am. Here I am. You love me. You care for me. You bless me richly. I have a relationship with you like this. This is what he's trying to convey in this book. This is the love I have for you. Like a bridegroom for the bride. Listen to him. Hear him. Read him. Nurture a relationship with him. you want to cultivate love in your life, get away with him. Well, then it just gets weird, right? Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breast. If I found you outside, I would kiss you and none would despise me. What is going on? Well, she's saying, I wish you were like a brother because I would want to express 
love like I could to a brother, embrace or kisses maybe in that culture on the cheek or whatever it might be, I would want to be able to do that in public. I can do that with my brother in that culture, but I can't do it with my lover. Maybe because that's not what lovers would do in public at that time. Oh, if everyone could see our love. If they could see how we love each other, I would want them to see our love for each other. Remember, this song is not just intensely private, it's also public. It shows the beauty of their love to everyone else in the covenant of marriage. And that's why, again, in verse 4, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you will not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. She is saying, here, young women, who I think this book is written to, unmarried women, See the beauty that is our marriage. Wait, wait. This is a beautiful thing. See our love for each other, our mission together, our working together. See it being cultivated over time. You could see this beauty. It is found in the right right confines of commitment and covenant and vows. Yesterday, we rejoiced in my dad and mom's love and the beauty of their marriage, how it overflowed to us, their children, and to other people. Adrian and David were there yesterday, and they were playing songs for this celebration, and I think they were probably a little surprised that um, a quarter or a third of the people there were black. (laughs) What? What are all these African-American people, they're not African-American, African people doing here at my parents' 50th anniversary? The beauty of their marriage overflowed to others. In 1975, a friend said, you know, this graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Zenot, she's from Kenya and she needs a place to live. They housed this Muslim woman and she lived with us for four years. She was the first one to watch me when my parents went out for a date when I was born. And yesterday, we celebrated how my parents housed over 25 students in their home over the years as they lived in Madison. And we rejoice in the beauty that their love overflowed to other people. You know, as I get older and kind of more retrospective of my parents' marriage and who they are as people, maybe not just seeing them as my parents, but seeing who they are as individuals, I kind of realize more the sacrifices that they made. You know, I have to understand, my, my parents came from Depression-era parents. They were both very driven, very successful people. They met at Yale University Hospital. My mom was a head nurse there. My, my father was doing his fellowship as a surgeon. They were very successful people. 
They gave up things to be married. They gave up a lot of career opportunities. My mom gave up nursing. They gave up a lot of things to love us. But in that sacrifice for each other, in that marriage, they even saw that there could be a mission in that. And that mission overflowed, housing people in their home, then knowing Zenot that she was in Kenya, going visiting her in Kenya, then doing mission work in Kenya, then going back to Kenya, and then to Malawi, and to Madagascar, and Afghanistan. You see, what happened is, when they saw their mission together, it started to overflow to other people. I do think they could have done greater worldly things if they had not gotten married. But here's the thing. God does not regard his servants according to the dignity of their office, but by the faithfulness that they exercise what he has given them. Aaron and I are not my parents, okay? I can brag on my parents, but I just will not have the intellect capability like my dad and my mom. They are very just, just successful people. But I'm going to be faithful in what I have. And Aaron and I are going to be faithful in what we have. And I think that gives mission for other people to see the beauty of our marriage. Many of you don't see the beauty that I see of my wife. That over the years, how she is better at talking to people outside the church than I am. In Colorado, she met some woman in a bookstore and talked over books. She invited her to church. Her husband and her started coming to church. Now he's a deacon at our church in Colorado. Aaron met another woman at the gym, a young girl that was watching Ellie in the play place. She invited her to come to church and to get to know her. We developed a rich friendship with her. She wasn't a Christian. She came to know the Lord. She married a Christian guy, and I got to do the wedding. You see, marriage and being faithful in it, people can see the beauty of it. It can overflow to others. I don't know what that faithfulness is in your marriage. Maybe it's opening your home. Maybe it's serving somewhere else. Maybe, I don't know what it is, but what is it that people can see in the beauty that you have? Open yourself up to it. Listen, the people that live with my parents, my parents didn't hide their fighting. And they, yesterday at the wedding at the anniversary, they actually talked about how they loved that my parents fought in front of them, that it taught them how to fight well with their spouse when they got married. People can see the brokenness of your marriage, and through that, they can see the glory of Christ in it. At the same time, marriage can limit us in mission. When we get married, we give up certain things. Career aspirations, maybe working, 
maybe not working 60 hours a week, but less. We give up certain things in marriage. But at the same time, we acquire amazing, beautiful things in it. Virtues, patience, kindness, holiness. And that's why I want to say something to singles here. You have something that married people do not have. Paul just isn't throwing you a bone, single people, when he says singleness is a gift. Oh, I better, I better talk to single people, throw them a bone. It's a gift. No, the word is charisma in 1 Corinthians. It's a grace of God. It's his provision. You're not single because you're not desirable. Okay? Get that lie out of your head. You're single because that is God's grace for you. That's his plan for you. That might sound very trite from a guy that's married. But that's the truth. And married people, we have to stop saying to single people, once you get comfortable in your singleness, then you can get married. That is not true. No, God has them single for a reason. For a purpose. There's not tears in, in married people or a higher tier than single people. You know, it really wasn't until the Reformation that the stigma of married people, married people were seen as less spiritual <laughs> until the Reformation. And single people were seen as more spiritual. It wasn't until the Reformation that that really happened. So let's see this in context of, of time and history. You see, singles, you have an opportunity, a grace, a gift for mission that married people do not have. A way to serve that married people do not have. Use it. See it as a grace from God. You know, all these people talked about all these great memories of my dad and mom yesterday. And all the beauties of their, their marriage. But the most things I remember is green bean casserole. <laughs> Long car trips. Card games. The mundane. Is that really beautiful? Isaiah says this, He had not form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. That's talking about Jesus. But later in Isaiah it says this, Behold the king in his beauty. Augustine says this, Jesus is the beauty of all things beautiful. 
You see Christ in his obedience, in living a perfect life, in dying on the cross. Something that might, people not, might see as beautiful. We can see the beauty of the bridegroom that came for us, his bride. And then we can gaze upon the beauty of the cross and the resurrection. And by the effects of that beauty, we can be overcome and we can be transformed by it. Will you let that beauty cultivate your life? Will you see that even in marriages in our world that are broken, that have problems even in your own, the problems that might happen, you might see that God's beauty can be seen. Will you see that upon the cross, upon a sacrifice of Christ, that the world might say is foolishness. We see this is no foolishness. This is the beauty of God and his love for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for my dad and my mom. Thank you for showing me, even through the mundane, even through arguments, that you are beautiful, that you have created marriage for a purpose and for a reason, and we can rejoice in it. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.